Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, everybody. It is Liquid Lunch, and it is Thursday, and we got a big day here at that channel today. Well, you know all about it if you get our emails or if you check our, our calendar. But uh, right now, we are very glad to have Barry Brown here on the show. And Barry has some groundbreaking information. He's done a lot of research. And he's got the book. I don't know if we can show the cover of the book. And um, what's great about this is that it's about the world before religion, war, and inequality. And uh, Barry, this is, uh, this is some groundbreaking stuff. So let's, let's get right into this. Because you've, you've been doing this research for years. I think we had you on the show about before five years ago, you wrote the book. Oh, right? yes. Yes, when I was still doing the research on it. Um, actually, it was really interesting because when I started off the book initially, I was looking into the question of the origins of religion, and it eventually expanded into a much larger book about really civilization. How does human culture, how does human civilization begin? Because as the book title uh, indicates, I started to come across these articles from Scientific American and others, which I quote in the first chapter of my book, that note that there's actually no evidence of organized human war anywhere on Earth before about 6,000 years ago. That's like none, okay? Now, individual people, of course, did kill e e people from time to time, and there, there's evidence of, like, prehistoric soccer hooligans that might go around and massacre a bunch of people for no reasons. But if you look at the long history of humanity, say, starting with Lucy in Africa about 2 million years ago, and until the beginning of uh, the spread of common warfare, say about 4,000 years ago. Yeah. So you're basically looking at more than 99.99% of human history where we managed to populate the world, create planned cities, languages, advanced global trade, arts, medicine, technology, all before the first war, all before war becomes common. Because basically less than 0.01% of human history is in the last 4,000 years or so since war started to become common, if you start with Lucy in Africa. Right? So one of the questions, of course, is when was that first war, what led to it, and what were the consequences afterwards? Well, those sound like good questions. They are. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it almost seems counterintuitive to us that, that humans would not be warlike or not be getting involved in wars once they start to form themselves into tribes, mm -hmm. into nations, and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So. Well, I think uh, first of all, if you look at if you look at the evidence, that's not actually so. There's there's actually no evidence to support that idea. In the first place, among these roughly eight million species of life on Earth, only three engage in war, which is to say, attacking some other part of something else without any reason. Are because, ants one of them? Yeah, ants, uh, chimpanzees, and humans. And of the three, humans go to war least often. That ants, the, the ants and the apes are more warlike than we are. Okay. Now, the other thing that you can look at is this, and this is pretty more specific to humans. People, as people, we only have three kinds of relationships, right? You and I can be friends, we can be neutrals, or we can be enemies. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you look at the origins of human civilization and you say, which of those three 
basic relationships were driving us. Well, if we were enemies, then you would see war weapons among the prehistoric tools. But you look at millions of years of, of creations of tools that we've made, you find hunting weapons and tools, but no war weapons. Okay? You would, if we were all hostile to each other, you would see walled villages and cities early on. But in fact, you see none of them until about 5,000 years ago. You would see isolated gene groups, but in fact, everybody in the world is related to everybody else. Mm -hmm. The same with languages. You have these great, huge language groups, four of them, that create all the world's contemporary languages. So all the evidence points to the fact that we're not enemies. Because of all the interconnections of things, we can't be neutrals. Therefore, friendly trade must have been the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we can put even more evidence on that. Uh, there was a panel discussion at the World Science Fair in New York a few years back, and they were talking about there's evidence that 400,000 years ago, so this is 300,000 years before our line, the Homo sapiens, appear, 400,000 years ago there's evidence of long-distance regular trade networks in southern Africa of people, ans- our ancestors, human ancestors, trading in polished beads and shells and cosmetic clay. Okay. How many years ago? 400,000 years ago. So th- those were not Homo sapiens? No, 300,000 years before the Homo sapiens. Okay. Okay? But yeah. what this tells us, if they have these regular ongoing trade groups, trade uh, routes going on, they already have human language. You have to have human language if you're going to do trade. And if you have human language, then you must have human culture because you need a culture in order to develop a language. So we already have a sense of human culture almost half a million years ago long before the Homo sapien line. So it really puts our understanding of what human civilization, how when human civilization begins and how our ideas for what human life means take form much earlier than we actually thought. So then what happened? Did something <laughs> happen? Was there some trigger event that uh, kind of tipped us over the edge from a peaceful a trading culture to... Mm-hmm to this warlike state that we're obviously still in? <laughs> well, it depends on how you look at it. Most people are still nonviolent. I mean, despite the media and the stuff that goes on and, and the things that are happening in different parts of the world, obviously. But the majority of people really aren't violent. I mean, one of the things to, that you can point out is, you know, if people were actually prone to violence and killing, then you'd figure if you had a whole bunch of people and you put them in a place where you gave, there were more weapons than human beings and you encourage them through all manner of media and propaganda to say the solution to all problem is to kill something, then if people were really inclined to act that way, there would be nobody left alive in the United States. They would have killed each other a long time ago because they have more weapons than people and all the shows and movies and there's so many people are telling them all the time, kill this, kill that, you know, da-da-da, pray for their death, kill them all. And yet, somehow, mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't happen. It encourages the borderline people to do things, for sure, but it doesn't make the majority of people like that because people really aren't violent and never have been. Mm-hmm. Okay? But going back to your question, um, really you're asking two things about what happens with the first war, what causes the first war. Obviously, in order to have a war, you have to have a division in society, more than one, really. Okay? So really, you have to ask an earlier question. When do divisions begin in human growth, and then how do those divisions eventually lead to such an extreme breakdown in social relations that they lead to war, a big mass-scale murder of people that had never happened in the world before. It was like releasing Pandora out of the box. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, something that created divisions. I think I read something recently where somebody was uh, saying that there are essentially two types of, of of humans mm-hmm. in, in terms of how they approach life mm-hmm. and basically it boiled down to you got the left wingers and you got the right wingers 
And so, the, which kind of explains why almost every country in the world has that kind of basic division, or that's the fundamental political tension uh, throughout the world. Well, I think collectivist versus individualist kind of thing. Well, yes, and I understand where you're coming from, but I think you're making. A, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at things from a modern political framework. It's understandable why you're doing that. But I think we need to step back because politics <clears throat> is not something that's genetic. It's a creation, mm -hmm. okay, of how we decide to look at things and perspectives we put on. But let, let's step back a little bit farther and, and let's look at something else, which is uh, I was reading this article in the BBC not long just a few days ago, and it was talking about the difference between male and female brains, okay, mm -hmm. so we can talk about something more specific. And it was saying, and we know this to be true, that male and female brains operate somewhat differently. And according to the article, uh, men tend to look at things more holistically and women more in detail. Now, uh, it's sort of like in your political analogy, the writer of the science article uh, was suggesting that this is why men and women can't get along or work together, because our brains operate differently. But really, this is a propagandist way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is to say... We look at things differently because we need different perspectives in life in order to understand things better. And so this brings us down to your question, which is what is the fundamental nature of all things in the universe? And all things in the universe are the same and different. We're not all one, obviously, and we're not all different, obviously. Everything has qualities that are the same and different. You and I have things that are similar and different. You, me and the plant, you know, uh, the, uh, a planet, you know, we all have... Different things you can look at as having life forms. Me and a tree, we got roots, we got limbs, you know. It depends what you have, DNA, how many points of connection you want to see. And, and so why are things like that? Why is it that we all have qualities of similarity and difference, and everything does? Well, because the universe needs to be that way. If, we, if everything was the same, then there would be no change. And if everything was different, nothing could make connections. Everything is the same and different so that we can both connect and create new things and, you know, evolve. <laughs> if everything was the same, that couldn't happen, and if everything disagreed, that couldn't happen. The problem in society today is not that we have differences, but we've lost a sense of working together. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the advantages of that. I mean, well, survival of the fittest is good maybe on one-on-one -on -one if I'm in a boxing ring, but if you want to have an advanced society or system of any kind, you have to have cooperation. For sure, right? But we do have that, uh, you know, like, for example, uh, any group of people involved in a, in a company, for example, an organization, a business, a school, like anything that's uh, where, where there's a bunch of people working together, they are working together. Yeah. And one of the struggles is how do we design systems or how do we uh, how do how do we do that what are the detailed processes that we need to put in place to work together well i think in some cases your question is misplaced i don't think there are any systems that people naturally work together when there's a breakdown in society after big natural disasters the soviet union collapses things like that yeah there are certain people who take advantage of it but for the most part what you find especially in really big natural disasters people come out of the woodwork to help each other people who usually have nothing to do with each other suddenly come out for the benefit to rebuild the community it's only when governments and processes come in that they start to divide people but people naturally like to work together that's why social networks are so big on the web people the secret of human success is that we like to party okay that's what made us successful over our ancestors we like to exchange genes and information more than all the others we like working together and leaving people alone with a common value of sense of the sense that you know uh, that I mean 
if you, if you think about it, how else could society have evolved? There were none of those things in the beginning. There were no politics. There were no guidelines. When our ancestors left Africa to go out and populate the world and create human civilizations, there were no philosophies. There were no religions. There were no teachers. All we had going out was human nature and our desire for knowledge and meeting other people. That was it. And with that, we created everything. So I challenge the premise that we need some system. I think the systems often damage things because they take people's initiative away of their own natural uh, sense, which is to resolve problems on their own, which we did for eons before there were written laws and all these government things. Okay. So what happened, Barry? Times changed. <laughs> things evolved. You know, uh, but what particular thing are you asking? <laughs> How did we get what to... What happened be, uh, to go from that state of cooperation to a state where war well, again, is commonplace? We're still cooperative. The majority of the world is cooperative. Now, if you want to ask about the first war, so the first war that takes place about 5,000 years ought to go, um, it's driven by the same things that drive all aggressive wars, greed and selfishness. It's like Game of Thrones. But how did those things come into being if we were so cooperative? Okay, so, again, it, it, it's a matter of having bad leadership and then people who follow bad leadership. So my book, for example, starts off and says, all right, as I was suggesting to you before, I've identified where the first war was, and if you want, we can talk about that a little bit. Where was it? Okay, so let's, let's, let's retract a little bit, because, of course, my book goes into a lot of things. So let me rewind, and let us assume that you ask the question, Barry, how did you start writing this book in the first place? <laughs> okay. Okay, so as my introduction says, I didn't set out to write a book of any kind. I had no idea what I was doing when I started. All I wanted to know was whether Aristotle was right. Okay. So about five, six, a bunch of years ago, I came across an obscure quote from Aristotle who said, the Jewish people are descended from the Brahmin <coughs> priests of ancient India. <clears throat> now, I was fascinated by this because I'm Jewish, and when I was younger, I spent three years as a Hare Krishna monk studying the ancient texts and language of India, the Sanskrit and the Vedas, and I was initiated as a Brahmin, sacred thread, fire ceremony, the whole thing, right? So I was real curious to know whether the old Greek was right or not, right? So, you know, like a good investigative journalist that I am, you know, I decided to investigate it. Now, admittedly, I wasn't really sure if he was right, but I put on my fedora and decided to look at the Bible like a good detective and see if there was anything in there, because there better be something pretty unequivocal, or why am I bothering, right? Okay. So, as we know, the story of human civilization in the text there starts off with the Garden of Eden story. Now, I don't really care about the two naked people and the snake. What I need to know is geography. Where's Waldo? Okay? So... Where was this over here? There's actually. Waldo. Okay. Yeah. All right. So where was Eden? Now, chapter two of Genesis says that Eden was a was a place, a cultivated area of land in a larger place called Havila, a country called Havila, by a river called the Pishon, P-I-C-H-O-N. Fine. Where was Havila? So now, like Indiana Jones, I turn to the 1906 20-volume Jewish Encyclopedia, which tells me that the oldest Christian traditions dating back to the 2,000 years to the founding of the Christian church, and before that in Judaism, says that Havila was India, and Eden, being in the easternmost part, makes the Bashan the modern Ganges River, the sacred Ganga River of India, which is its eastern border, basically. Mm -hmm. This is what the Jewish encyclopedia and more than 2,000 years of Jewish and Christian sources say, not me. Okay, you can look it up. So now I've got a qu now two things I start to realize. All right, The first thing that I start to think about is, okay, so... This story of the Old Testament that we think of as the story of one group of people isn't really. It's about four distinct but related groups. 
So you have this first group of people who are living in northern India, the Adam to Noah stories, okay? Then you have a climactic event, which happens about 2000 BC, which is this long period of extreme climate change, of droughts and terrible floods that affect basically the whole world. It affects the Indus River Valley in India. It affects Mesopotamia, Egypt, and China. So is that the flood, Noah's yes, flood? Yes, that's where the flood story comes out, because that's what happens. It's not a big flood that destroys the whole world, but it is terrible floods, and the people... The, uh, who are living in the Indus River Valley, which was once a lush valley and then dries out after terrible rains, becomes a drought. Nobody can live there, so they have to leave. Some of these people go into the Middle East, and they become known as the Hebrews. And the word Hebrew means wanderers who came from the East, because they migrated these Indo-Semitic people out of, the, out of northern in, uh, northwest India, the Indus River Valley, into Mesopotamia. Okay? Mm-hmm. Right? Then, with Book 2, you have the emergence of a third group of people, the ancient Israelites, who are a separatist group, because by definition they are separating themselves from some of the India-based identity of the Hebrew people. And another way that we know that the Hebrew people came from India is that if you look at the ruins of 2,000-year-old Israelite synagogues and temples in modern Israel, you will see the Indian swastika in the decoration. Now, Israelites are a Middle Eastern Semitic people with no connection to the swastika, and they would not let anything into their house of God that wouldn't be part of their tradition. And since it's not come from them, it has to come from the Hebrews. And there's lots of other evidence about this connection. So okay? there's two groups that... Two, no, the, no, the, no the, four, four. So you've got the Adam to Noah, yeah. the Hebrews, yeah. the Israelites, yeah. and then with the downfall of the kingdoms, you have the Jewish people, of which I'm one. Okay. okay. But now we have another question. Right. Okay, and that question is this. What started the biblical story? Okay? okay. Now you probably know, as many of the viewers do, that there are some fundamentalists out there who go around saying that the world was created 6,000 years ago, right? And they get that number, that 6,000-year number, from the Hebrew calendar, the Jewish calendar, which is 5,770-odd years old this year, mm-hmm. because those people who take everything literally like to round things up. But that's okay, I do too. Okay, so that's where they get the 6,000-year-old number. But this idea that year one of the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar, is when the world was created, is a completely made-up concept. There was an Irish Catholic bishop about 600 years ago came up with this, and then the Protestants ran with it later. But the Hebrew tradition says nothing of the kind. Jewish Hebrew tradition says this calendar began when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. So now we have another question. We know that Eden was in India. So the question is, what happened in ancient India 6,000 years ago, almost, that could have started this story? Whatever it was, it could not have been a religious event because there are no organized religions 6,000 years ago. There's no Hindus, there's no Hebrews. None of these people exist. So whatever happened, it had to have been an event of such momentous importance in human history that it was almost like creating a new kind of human being. And that event was the world's first war. That the Garden of Eden story, the historical event underneath it, is not about the creation of the world's true people. It's about the downfall of the world's first human civilization known as the Age of Knowledge, the Vedic period in ancient India, like the tree of knowledge in the, in the text, and how it's brought down by the world's first war. And the expulsion bit at the end of that story is the dark ages that followed, that after the wars, the terrible war, people abandoned the cities, nobody wants to play together, and they all abandoned stuff, and that we shrink into a dark ages until the rise of the second round of civilizations, the ones we were just talking about that come down with the flood in 2000 BC. So in other words, that uh, that war, yes. which saw the destruction of all that history, of what, right? The, the and so he kind of had to start over again, and yeah. Adam and Eve left the garden. No, 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 no. Adam and Eve just, it's sort of, it works well, like this. that's what you said. I'm sorry. They left the Garden of Eden, that was the beginning of that's the calendar. Well, sure, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me. Let me be more clear. That's the tradition, and of course it is based on the story. 
But if you look underneath to the history, what it refers to is sort of like this. When I say to you today, there was a time before war, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there saying, really, I don't believe it, you know? I mean, I can't think of it. Okay, so now imagine you're like, I don't know, 2000 BC. So 2000 years after the first war. And war is now spread, it's pretty common. And I say to you, because I know from the oral histories passed down, that there was a time before war. Okay, and you say to me, oh yeah, right. Once the world was a garden, everybody got along, and then all of a sudden God got ticked off and then threw us all out, right? So that's kind of how the story gets created. And it's understandable how it does, because they've forgotten. Okay, so the idea that Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden is the clue, not the specific. So Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden, something happened in India that caused these people to go from one area of India, basically in the east by the Ganges, to go over eventually and move westward towards the Indus River Valley, where the Noah story eventually happens. So, okay, so uh, what caused this war? Okay. Because uh, you're saying that uh, it's not natural for humans to have a war. Again, not natural. I would not necessarily say that. I mean, it's in our nature. It's just not common. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's just like they're really violent, psychopathic people. That's not, can't say it's unnatural. I mean, it's not common, but it's something that happens. (laughs) Okay, so in terms of the first war, what you have basically is um, rival clans for the throne. And one side of the clan doesn't want to share power with the other. That's the tradition, is that they would. See, that sounds pretty human. Yes, I'm not saying it's not unnatural or not uncommon. But in order for this bad prince in India to do what he did and cause the war, he had to have everybody else fall into line and decide to go to war with him. Okay? So you needed to have that. But let's go back a little farther. In order to have the first war, you've got to have soldiers. And in this case, according to the text in ancient India, you have trained soldiers with all kinds of tactics. And not only that, but what's even more interesting is that before the two sides of the family go to war with all of their allied clans, they, uh, they agree on the rules for an ethical war, 13 rules, that they will abide by. They only fight from sunrise to sunset. They can't hit a person when they're down. They can't, you know, got to take care of your prisoners and treat them. They can't like the Geneva Convention. Um, more like the schoolyard rule fights, but a little bit the Geneva Convention too, yes. And of course the funny thing is, or, you know, it breaks down after a while, whenever, very quickly, when everybody gets going. Oh, of course it does, yeah. But there's another question to be asked out of this. Mm-hmm. If they had rules that they just adopted, and if they had all these trained fighters and tactics and strategies, but they didn't have, there's no record of conquering wars before that, where did they come from? What, the rules? Or the soldiers? Both. Or the weapons? Both. Or... Both. Where did any of that come from? Yeah. Before they got to the war? Where did it come from? Games. They were fighting, they had war games before there were real wars. That's why they had the rules. Because the rules must have come from huge war games that they had been doing before that. Because you, you see in all the ancient civilizations, they do have warlike games that they play. You know, it's like football in the modern world, you know, hockey. <laughs> These or, are uh, warlike games. Apparently the uh, natives in North America used to yeah. have giant lacrosse games yeah, yeah. instead of wars yeah, yeah. to settle yeah, yeah. Uh, scores. Because you have games first. Mm-hmm. So they must have had, because they had these rules and all these tactics and trained soldiers, but no record of conquering wars, they must have had Olympic-sized massive war games on battlefields, okay, and where everybody came and there were spectators because one of the rules is don't hurt the spectators. What spectators? <laughs> well, they must have had games before, right? And that's where they all trained up. And so this time when they were going in, it's sort of a little bit like the beginning of World War I. Nobody knows what it's going to be like. They have no idea. Because all the games before that have been games. You're not really supposed to kill anybody. People might get killed, but 
you don't intend to it because it's a game. And I'm sure as they started to assemble for this great thing, they thought it would be over fairly quickly, and nobody could really imagine the scale of bloodshed. That if the record is correct, you're talking about 4 million men-at-arms killed in a space of 18 days. 4 million? 4 million. 2.5 okay. million on one side, 1.5 on the other. Now, I've got to ask you this because... Um, mm-hmm. I've heard stories or seen uh, uh-huh. information about uh, evidence that, uh, one, that there have been nuclear, uh, there's evidence of nuclear uh, radiation contamination mm-hmm. uh, in India, in ancient mm-hmm. India. Or, I mean, in India, that they found uh-huh. evidence of radiation sure. remnants, and they're saying, mm-hmm. attributing it to an ancient nuclear war, perhaps, also... There are stories that uh, in ancient India they had flying mm-hmm. uh, saucers th- that they called the Vimanas. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if those uh, those two stories are related to what you're talking about. No, I don't use them at all. No, I, I you know, I mean. So you've looked at that, and there's no evidence of those things, or where do those not, stories come to, from? I wasn't really concerned about that because. There's not enough substantial evidence to say whether there was or there wasn't. I mean, I know what the books say, and I know some of the things that are there, but it's not. It's not really substantial, and really, on the on the, on the basis of in the in the in the very fundamental thing, uh, there's no evidence wherever it took place. There's nothing. I tell I mention that in my book after I describe it. Absolutely no evidence. Never found the bodies. They haven't identified a battlefield. There's no evidence for the war in any place anywhere. Okay, my book suggests that the best evidence for it is what happens is the civilization that follows the war in India that's a reaction to it. But I'll get into that in a second. Okay. Um, let's go back to the story of the war itself and the four million dead. Yeah. You don't need the mass destruction weapons to do it. That was what I wanted to know. You know, because uh, that's a lot of people to be killed, and there's no evidence for it. So let's first find out and ask ourselves the question, is it possible with basic weapons that you would find at the time swords, maces, maybe a throwing weapon or something, arrows, spears, that kind of thing. Same thing that the Romans would have. Okay? Yeah. Um, could you kill that many people in that short a time? That's all I really wanted to know. Is it possible? You know, you know, in 18 days, yeah. can you kill 4 million people? With conventional With conventional weapons basic weapons that you would find before the modern age. And the answer is, yeah, you can. And the, the evidence that I put in for it is what's known as the Battle of Cannae. And this was a battle between the Roman legions and Hannibal, the Carthaginian general. Right. The guy and on the elephants in the Alps. That's the same dude. Yeah. So he, he trapped something on the order of about 70,000 Roman legions in an area about twice the size of Central Park, massacred them all in six hours. This is according to the Roman reports, not his. He didn't leave mm. any reports. So it was such a horrible massacre, I'm assuming that the Romans aren't exaggerating their loss. Mm-hmm. So if you multiply out... You know, say 60,000, I think was I was using as my base, 60,000 in six hours or 70,000 in six hours, and go back and forth over, say, 18 hours a day, so they don't fight 24 hours even though they seem to be, but let's be conservative. You come out to, you know, 3.9 million, so, yeah. So it works out. So it does work out. Um, you can do it. You just have to be really determined to kill everybody. So what are the implications of this? Because you're saying that there was a time there was no war. That's right. And yet we we went to this war, and we've had war ever since. And uh, it does seem to be part of uh, human nature, human culture, mm -hmm. right? War erupts every now and again, but the vast majority of time and places in the world, people are peaceful. Do you think we're going to be able to uh, get over that, get over the fact? Because now we've got uh, nuclear weapons. 
and uh, you know, so well, one well, war could go horribly wrong. Yeah, that's, yeah, but I mean, a nuclear weapon is like a big bad thing, as are you know the chemical weapons that came before them. But as we were just discussing about Kanai and other places, or you know, Genghis Khan or some of the other people. You know, you take your guys and you just start swinging the sword. You can massacre more, many more people than you can with an atomic bomb. Okay, so it takes you more than one explosion. It takes you a week. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. If you're killed, it doesn't really matter how you're killed in the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question is really the same. Okay, what, what is the question, what is the difference between a, a, a society at war and a society at peace? Okay, and basically it's attitude. <clears throat> what do you want? Like, what's the essential difference? between Toronto and Detroit or Cleveland or any other place where they have all this terrible violence. Well, there's a lot of different things that make Toronto peaceful. One of the things is the the fact that we try to work things out. We mm-hmm. have goodwill and try. Everybody gets somewhat of a fair shake. We're part of a, a you know the, the social contract. And we've always been like that, right from the beginning. You know, We had to accommodate other kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to adjust fairly well to it. Mm-hmm. And other countries, too, tend to be okay that way until you have leadership that says, oh, these people are bad. And let's face it, those kind of people pop up from time to time in modern society. You know, it's like, oh, the first the English say here, you know, the English don't like the Catholic French, and then the Irish come, the Jews, the Germans, <laughs> black people, Sikhs. Remember the Sikhs in the RCMP? Big hoo for about two weeks. <laughs> and then it went away. Nobody cares. Well, it's interesting when you talk about these uh, bad leaders that emerge from time to time. Often they um, they emerge um, when the culture is under a lot of stress, whether that's economic stress or whether that is, uh, you know, it usually tends to be, you know, that's what that's what really gets people. Well, when again, people can't get food to eat or they can't. No. Get the stuff true. they need to, yeah. to just get through the day. Not necessarily, you know. I mean, it's like people, for example, they make uh, will sometimes make the argument, you know, that uh, oh, war must begin because there's a strain on resources. And again, a lot of this is propaganda that is put out by people who've been so watched so many movies and fictional things all the time. Well, I'm no just thinking about have, Hitler and the yeah, German situation. Say, yeah, okay, you know. but okay, but I could point you out to FDR and Churchill. You know, I mean, they rallied their countries to the same things without massacring people or causing great divisions in their society or deciding to conquer others. I mean, think about it more in the beginning. Let's say that we're living in a society before war, which all the evidence points to. Okay, so let's follow the strain on resources theory. Okay? So all of us, I'm, I'm out of resources. Now, in the first place, the resources don't disappear overnight. It's not like one day I've got an orchard and all kinds of animals around me, and the next day, where do they all go? Well, you could. But let's assume that they did. Something happens, and boom, magically, they're all gone, but I'm still here. Whatever it was that destroyed everything else left me standing. Yeah. But let's assume that that happens anyway, okay? Yeah. Now, up to now, my relationships with all of my neighbors have been friendly, okay? Yeah. And... My experience tells me that if I happen to be hungry and for some reason there's nothing here, and if I don't just do what everybody does when they lose a job, which is move to someplace else, because there may not be food here, but over the next hill there might be, or an animal, or something, the way you would in uh, normal life, right? And if you come across a hut, you probably go and say, hey, I'm hungry, buddy, can you spare a leg of frog or whatever they happen to have, right? And they would go, yeah, sure, because the law of hospitality is the oldest human cultural tradition. Yeah. Okay, so why, if that's the case, 
would you go to all the trouble of trying to develop war weapons, get a bunch of people together, and convince them to go and risk their lives to go and kill a bunch of other people in order to get their food that they would give to you if you just asked anyway? I'm just thinking about something like, uh, I mean, I've heard the story of how there was a big volcano that uh, blew in 535, threw a lot of ash into the air, and, and summer didn't, it cooled the earth down for a year, for a year or two, and the summer didn't come that year, the crops failed, and, and uh, you know, societies all across the northern hemisphere, were, there was just no food, and then that caused political uh, chaos, wars, revolutions because people in were desperate places. to seek a solution, right? Yeah, well, in some places... they were hungry. Yeah, in some places that happens, especially if there's nothing available. But in other, other parts of the world, the same thing happens. And, you know, it, it depends. People react individually. We've had economic depressions. and I mean, if you look at the history of humanity, there's been great ice ages that have happened, like the mini ice age, even when we came out of Africa. We're living in the tropics. All of a sudden, 100,000 years ago, we're in the midst of, a, of an ice age that's going to go on for, what, another 10, 30,000 years or something? You know, and did we freak out and say, "Ooh, it's cold. I'm going to go back"? No, because we're humans. We're people. That, you know, we we like challenge. In fact, here's a good story. Let's turn away from the question of war, and instead, let's ask a different question. What is the essence of human nature and the human identity, and where does it begin? Okay, give me a buck for a second here. <laughs> okay, bear. Thanks. Okay, so I want to I want to show you a couple of things here, because in following this question of how do hum how does human civilization begin? and what, you know, affects and creates our human identity. I came across something that was very interesting, and that was this. Uh, we know from science that uh, about 100,000 years ago, Homo sapiens, what we call the people with insight, emerge. And what makes the people with insight different from our ancestors that came before us was that we start to form larger groups, exchange more information, and start populating the world. Okay? Why? What happens 100,000 years ago that sets this off? Aliens. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> Want to try again? I give up. Okay. Uh, some people also say resources, but Africa's a big continent. Why would you have to go out and do all that stuff it, just because you have one bad crop season? Okay, what was okay. it? Okay. Balance. Yeah. What changed uh-huh. was human beings developed the kind of balance that we have today that gives us really good balance in the world, and that was a big change from our ancestors. So I'm going to show you something here. Yeah, yeah, we can see that. All right. So all the way through human evolution, there you go. (laughs) One thing that kept changing was our system for calculating balance. This is what's called the vestibular system that's behind the inner ear. Right. Okay, and this is the software that helps you orient yourself in the world. All the way through human evolution, we were getting a little bit better at it. And the folks who came in second in the human race, the Neanderthals, as you can see here, they didn't have a very sophisticated one compared to ours. And that is why, when you look at the Neanderthal skeletons, okay, you can see... They had long arms, right? No, no. We're the long and lanky ones. They're short. In fact, this is like... The, sorry, that's us, right? And, oops, and here's them. Yeah, okay. Now, one of the things that you notice with, the, with Neanderthal is that no matter how many workouts they do, they're never going to have that curvy figure because their rib cage flares out, not in. And the reason they're short and stocky is because they don't have great balance. So their balance has to come from mass distribution, like SpongeBob SquarePants, okay? Now, when we start developing individual balance, like I say to you today, center yourself, right? We have the phrase today, center yourself, find your center. Our ancestors couldn't conceive of that notion because they didn't have a center that moved with them. They just had mass distribution. You and I have a center that moves with us, okay? So now all of a sudden we have a new sense of individuality 
that didn't exist before in our human ancestors. Because of our biology. Because of the way we perceived the world and operated it, exactly. And the second thing that balance changed was our sense of freedom. Because where our ancestors could populate parts of the world, they had to be risk-averse. All of a sudden, with us, you know, we want to jump on a vine like Tarzan and swing across the jungle, climb up a rock face backwards, or jump on a log and paddle across a river. We can do that. Our ancestors couldn't. So now the two key components of the, of the modern human identity, freedom and individuality, are, have emerged because we have this new sense of balance in our place in the world. And then how does this sense of physical balance translate culturally? Well, balance is about bringing more things together and organizing them, right? So we start to form larger groups. We start to share information. And as we know from robotics, the most difficult thing still is to try and get a two-legged robot to stay upright and not be pushed over easily. So as humans, the earliest humans, start to do little lean-tos and building balancey things, because that's part of the culture, which includes sharing and collectives and you know, more things, more organizing more things, they're causing neural networks to start developing in their brains, new clusters of brain cells that down the road 40,000 years to 40,000 years ago starts to emerge the, the Homo sapiens sapiens, our direct ancestors, who start with the cave paintings and the proto-letters and the alphabets and all of the things that we think of as modern civilization. And it started with balance 100,000 years ago. You know, that sounds uh, like a real virtuous circle, and it's kind of reminding me of a, a book I read once uh, by Julian Jaynes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, but no. basically about how Something happened in our biology. He talks about the left and the right hemispheres mm -hmm. and how the, mm -hmm. it, it caused, again, as you're saying, mm -hmm. the neural networks and, mm -hmm. and a change in consciousness, a yes. change in how we even come to understand ourselves. That's so right. I'm just saying that uh, this book here, uh -huh. it's got more in it than I thought, Barry. <laughs> I thought it was, it sounds like it's way more than a historical a document, but it's also really part of, uh, you know, anthropology and, and the development of the human species. So I just want to say thanks for coming in today. Oh, thanks very much. Giving us a very brief introduction to the book. And, of course, people can email you. Uh, we uh -huh. put it up there and uh, get a copy of the book. And uh, we're hoping that you're going to be doing a show on a regular basis and uh -huh. you can bring this kind of information to people on a regular basis. Absolutely. The book actually won't be out until September. just went off to the printers today. So it'll be out in, in September. But... Uh, if people want to contact me about uh, doing a speaking engagement or they'd like to help out, like you were saying, developing a show here for that channel, um, or they just like to you know, promote the ideas of the book amongst their peace groups or other organizations, yeah, absolutely, get in touch with me and uh, you know, I can send them a sample of the book and keep them you know, in touch with what's going on. Awesome. Okay, thanks, Barry. Right. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, man. Good to see you again. Yeah, you too. So we're going to take a little break here on Liquid Lunch. We've got lots more coming up at you. So uh, stay tuned right for If you love football, yelling at television screens with friends, and wearing clothing with someone else's name on it, there's a seat waiting for you at Buffalo Wild Wings, where you can enjoy football food and football beverages on our new $5 game day menu. Cheeseburger and fries, brats, 
cocktails, and pitchers of beer are just $5 each. Escape to football and the new $5 game day menu at Buffalo Wild Wings. Price and participation vary by location. Not valid with any other offer. Please drink responsibly.